the future First Lady Jill Biden is a community college professor, um, which makes her intimately familiar with a lot of the issues that community colleges face. And although the administration can't enact legislation on their own, they can certainly influence what policies Congress takes up over the next two years, including those related to higher education. This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. On this episode of In the Know, I spoke with Katie Brown, ACCT's Director of Government Relations, Jose Miranda, ACCT's Senior Government Relations Associate, and Jim Hermes, AACC's Associate Vice President for Government Relations, about what to expect from Capitol Hill and the White House in the coming year. We also discussed the upcoming National Legislative Summit and how to prepare. More information will be available in this episode's description. This conversation was recorded on Zoom, so you might notice a few brief dips in audio quality. This conversation was recorded a few weeks ago, and some of the information has changed since the time of the recording, but the bulk of the discussion is relevant information that community college leaders need to know. All right, so first, can you guys tell us what is currently happening in Washington right now? I know that's a huge question, but can you give us a little a little bit of background? Right, so we're at the uh, end of the uh, session right now, and it's always a sort of a very busy time in D.C. as Congress, uh, after spending a lot of time perhaps not getting as much done as it should, uh, is trying to wrap up uh, some of the details on uh, end of the year business. Uh, as is often the case uh, right now, we are um, they're trying to finalize the appropriations for the fiscal year 21, which actually started a couple of months ago at the beginning of October. Uh, So that's pretty typical. Uh, What is a little bit different from our perspective this year, of course, is uh, the negotiations that are ongoing over another possible uh, pandemic uh, stimulus bill, uh, which they hope to join in with the appropriations bill uh, uh, into one large package. Uh, As I said, negotiations actually on both those things are ongoing. Neither of them have been finalized. Um, those are the two biggest items from our perspective. There are a number of other things that Congress is working on, including defense authorization and uh, any number of other things that they hope to wrap up by the end of the, you know, this is not only the end of a session, but the end of a Congress. So, um, you know, a big deadline coming up for them. Uh, and um, uh, so it's, it's a busy time. There's a lot of conversations going on. But in terms of funding, the, uh, originally, the, you know, the government has been operating uh, up until right about now under a, what's called a continuing resolution that keeps the government open uh, until a certain time. That deadline had been tomorrow, the 11th. They're working on another continuing resolution uh, and will pass it that will extend that deadline to next Friday, the 18th during which time they hope to finalize the negotiations on on those spending bills. What do you think the likelihood is that that happens? Or are there any, any other, you know, uh, any other things that people can be looking for? Yeah, well, that's the, I guess the $2.3 trillion question overall. (laughs) Uh, um, The, uh, I, I think the likelihood of them, wrapping up the uh, just the regular appropriations is pretty good. Uh, there are definitely still some issues that they need to work through. Some of them are ones that we've dealt with the last few years, funding for a border wall. Um, uh, there's some VA funding issues and some other things, but they'll probably get through that in this coming week. And uh, and beyond that, the, the funding bills are, uh, you know, the House and Senate versions are largely the same, so they should be able to strike a deal and get that going. The bigger question is really around the uh, 
the supplemental bill or the stimulus bill for the uh, pandemic. And um, uh, I hesitate to put any sort of odds on that right now. Although, you know, <laughs> the, pr the pressure is certainly mounting on Congress to do something, uh, particularly with the fact that the, uh, the extra unemployment benefits that were provided in the CARES Act, um, they expire at the end of the month. So that, that, that would be a big deal if they let that slide. Huh? So you mentioned that it is the end of a Congress and a change in the administration. Can you tell us a little bit of what we can expect in the coming year? Yeah, I think, you know, obviously, most notably, um, we'll, we'll see a new incoming administration. And President-elect Biden has a robust higher education agenda that emphasizes the role of community colleges, both in higher education space and workforce. Um, specifically, some of his agenda items when he was running included making two years of community college tuition free for all students, and then also investing about $50 billion in workforce training um, with an eye towards education and training programs that are actually offered at community colleges. And I'll also mention that the future First Lady, Jill Biden, is a community college professor, um, which makes her intimately familiar with a lot of the issues that community colleges face. And although the administration can't enact legislation on their own, they can certainly influence um, you know, what policies Congress takes up over the next two years, including those related to higher education. Um, and then also just looking at the makeup of Congress, um, we see that the House is still going to be led by Democrats, although the margins of their majority are a little bit smaller this year. Um, in terms of committee on the House side, we have Education and Labor Committee remaining, um, being chaired by Congressman Bobby Scott from Virginia and ranking member Virginia Fox from North Carolina. So that will stay the same. Um, on the Senate side, we're still kind of waiting to hear who will actually have majority in the Senate. Um, that all hinges on the January 5th election in Georgia, the Senate runoff election. So we're still kind of seeing who will hold the power there. Um, and then on the Senate Help Committee, who has jurisdiction over education issues, we're, we're not sure who will hold the gavel if Republicans do take power in the Senate or keep power in the Senate. Um, the current chairman, uh, Lamar Alexander is retiring at the end of this Congress. And so it's, there's a lot of question marks. Um, but I think any of the issues that, that Congress does decide to take up, which can be a number of issues over the next two years, including infrastructure, higher education act, reauthorization, um, all of those because of the slim margins in both chambers will require a lot of compromise. And to piggyback off of what Katie just said, you know, President-elect Biden does have his own higher ed agenda. He's going to come with a lot of ideas, but we're also going to be looking at a new Secretary of Education who is going to be, of course, following and trying to enact the priorities of the president, but they will also have their own set of priorities and their own set of ideas that they'll like to see the department engage. We don't know. This is one of the positions that President-elect Biden has not yet unveiled as he's been releasing slowly his slate of um, nominees for, for his cabinet. It seems like whoever is Secretary of Education might come from a K-12 background, which means that whoever becomes undersecretary is going to be very critical for us in the higher ed community. But another major thing that's new and that's a big deal in my personal opinion coming into the next year is that this is the first time in a decade that Congress and the appropriations process will not be bound by the Budget Control Act. 
So there will not be preset budget caps already set in stone. The budget committee and the role of the budget committee is once again going to take front and center role in establishing those top line numbers that then the appropriations committee takes and distributes the funds through the different programs and the different departments. So there's a, a lot of a lot of new stuff going on and a lot of potential changes. Um, so shifting to our legislative priorities, which we collaboratively produce with AACC, um, can you tell us what's going to be on the joint legislative agenda, uh, what it is, and how all of those pieces are put together? Yeah, so the, the, the idea behind the joint legislative agenda is obviously as the two uh, associations that are directly representing community colleges here in Washington, we obviously want to speak with one voice on public policy issues. And this is actually a historical vestige from a number of other different ways that the two associations have collaborated over the years. We used to have a joint commission on federal relations, which actually produced the original draft of this agenda. Uh, prior and even going back further than that, uh, actually federal relations for the two associations were handled um, were handled jointly. So, so the the legislative agenda remains, and really the idea behind it is to be, uh, you know, in talking in altitude terms, the thirty thousand foot view of what our overall legislative agenda is. It's broad ranging uh, when you look at it as a number of different topics in there, not all of which are going to be certainly front burner at the same time before Congress, uh, but what we expect to come up uh, during, you know, potentially during the course of the year and other, and just longstanding priorities in general. I mean, uh, people that follow the legislative agenda closely will note that, you know, a lot of the items until Congress gets them done uh, essentially remain steady uh, from Congress to Congress. Uh, the Dream Act, unfortunately, has been in there for some time now, for instance. Uh, so that's really what it is. It's, uh, it's a document that we use uh, in terms of our advocacy. We'll, we'll just uh, concretely, we'll bring it with us to meetings, particularly in a uh, meeting with an office that we haven't visited before. And we'll, and with, along with any other more specific materials, we'll, get, we'll also give them a legislative agenda to give them a, you know, a, an idea of what, uh, you know, what we care about as, as, a, uh, as a higher education sector. So in addition to some items that are unfortunately uh, evergreen, um, what else can we expect to see in this joint legislative agenda? Sure, I'll kick us off. I think, um, you know, one of the one of the issues that we advocate fiercely for every year um, revolve around the Pell Grant program, um, which we all consider to be kind of the bedrock of federal financial aid, helping students afford um, to enroll in post-secondary education and training programs. So I'll, I'll talk about three kind of areas that we're prioritizing within the Pell Grant program. The first is increasing the Pell Maximum Award. Um, Right now, students can get $6,345 per year towards their education. Um, and obviously, you know, education costs um, exceed that. And, and so actually that current grant only covers 29% of the average cost of a four, public four-year college. Um, and then with community college students, it may cover more of the tuition cost, but there's also cost of attendance to consider. And just, you know, with the pandemic um, and everything that has been going on in the current situation and the future economic downturn that we can expect from that, I think the amount of the Pell Grant award will be more crucial um, than ever before. So that's one of our top priorities. And then 
Um, we also advocate for students who are enrolled in shorter term programs that are under 600 clock hours of instruction to be eligible for Pell. Um, currently, students who are enrolled in those types of programs, which are often, you know, formed hand in hand with employers, they're a little bit more workforce oriented, they can get students in the door um, to their education and get them on a career pathway. Those, those courses are not currently eligible for eligible for Pell. So students are often on the hook to pay out of pocket for their cost for that program. So we're definitely advocating to see that change and see the Pell Grant modernized in that way. And then last but not least, we're also um, advocating for the reinstatement of Pell eligibility for incarcerated students, also known as Second Chance Pell. Um, right now that's operating kind of on a pilot program basis. So there are institutions that are able to offer Pell Grant programs to incarcerated students, but that's not something that's available across the board, across the nation. And so that's something we're trying to make more permanent. And in addition to Pell, which is again, our top priority and an annual issue for us, we also see federal funding as a top priority every year. You know, the appropriation process occurs every year Congress has to fund the federal government every year. They get delayed more often than not, but eventually they have to fund a government. And so there's a lot of top, um, top line priorities for us when it comes to higher ed funding programs. You know, in addition to the Pell Grant program, there's other financial aid programs like um, the Supplemental, um, Supplemental Education Opportunity Grant, as well as Federal Work Study, uh, on the student side, on the institutional side, there's a lot of uh, institutional aid programs that we advocate for. Many of our institutions are MSIs and HBCUs, and they receive uh, separate set-aside funding from the federal government. And for us as community colleges, we also have the Strengthening Institutions Program that is geared primarily for um, under-resourced community colleges. So that's those are big priorities for us. Uh, and then again, looking at how we can best serve our students, there's a lot of student support programs like, like C-Campus, like Gear Up, like Upward Bound, that many of our students benefit from. So we're always making, uh, ensuring that our voice is heard in front of appropriators to make sure that we get the adequate funding for these programs. And then following the, uh, on the legislative agenda, following the Pell and uh, funding items that Kitty and Jose uh, were talking about, uh, we get into the, uh, the single most important piece of legislation uh, on the authorizing side uh, for community colleges, and that's the Higher Education Act reauthorization. And uh, that is uh, that bill has been pending for reauthorization for a number of years now. Uh, it was last reauthorized in 2008. Uh, so it is due. And as you all know, there uh, have been a lot of changes in higher education and a lot of modernization needs to be done uh, to that bill and changes to it. So we are, you know, we are hopeful that um, Congress will turn to that and get that done in the coming Congress. Uh, we have uh, way more uh, uh, items uh, on the agenda with regards to HEA reauthorization than I'm going to mention right now. Uh, they do fall under the uh, general categories of student financing, access and affordability, institutional accountability and in promoting student success, uh, and innovation and compliance. And each of those uh, items has, uh, again, about five or six uh, bullet points underneath it. So a very wide ranging agenda in terms of the Higher Education Act reauthorization. It is a very complex piece of legislation. Uh, we expect to see the, uh, the House move forward with something similar to what they did uh, last uh, Congress uh, with, no, last year in terms of con uh, uh, 
the uh, affordability, their affordability act. And, uh, you know, it remains to be seen what will happen on the Senate side. Uh, um, but that's a, that's a, a heart of the item. And then after the Higher Education Act reauthorization, we, uh, we talk about uh, some of our other uh, priorities on the authorizing side. And one of them is um, that we actually added a little bit to this year is access to basic need services for low-income students. And kudos to ACCT and all the fine work that they have done uh, in this area in particular. But we uh, do have it as part of our legislative agenda that we want to see policies enacted that help economically disadvantaged students, uh, and you know, access all the services and benefits uh, that they need and are entitled to. Uh, and in particular, we don't want to see things like work requirements and so forth uh, get in the way of students being able to uh, avail themselves of those programs and continue on uh, with their education. And then next, uh, the workforce development, obviously a major agenda item for us as well. Uh, there are a number of pieces of legislation uh, at the center of that, including the Perkins uh, Career and Technical Education uh, uh, Bill, as well as the uh, Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act. Uh, and then a relatively new item in that area is increasing funding for the Strengthening Community College Training Grants Program, which is uh, in its second, uh, well, hopefully we'll, we'll be entering its second year in uh, FY21. And uh, other priorities there regarding rural economic development and also student access to the technology that they need. Uh, obviously that is something that has become uh, much more important even over uh, over this past year. Yeah and like Jim said earlier today you know like the HEA is what I would call our bread and butter in terms of our advocacy for authorizers but there are other issues that still impact our institutions and our students. Uh, Jim alluded to the DREAM Act earlier um, in this conversation, we're ending the year on a very positive note in that the DACA program is now officially fully reinstated. So they are accepting new applications. The, the, per, the length of the um, program is for two years and two year renewals, um, advanced parole and, and work, um, work permits are, are also reinstated. So that's really good. But ultimately what our advocacy is always saying that while DACA is good, it's not a permanent solution. So obviously we'll continue to advocate for the passage of a DREAM Act or something that provides a permanent solution to the many students that we serve who are DACA recipients. So there's a lot going on within our legislative agenda. Um, how can people learn more? So I'll kick us off by saying people can learn more by attending our upcoming National Legislative Summit or NLS for short. Um, Every year, ACCT and AACC come together to hold um, the summit, and that it's a venue where community college trustees and other leaders can come together and discuss issues they're facing, learn more about these issues, and also advocate on the Hill for policy changes. Um, this year, NLS will be virtual for obvious reasons, <laughs> but it will be held from on February 8th through 10th. Um, and we're, we're very much looking forward to it. As part of the NLS, we'll be hosting a panel discussion where we'll be diving into these priorities and talking more about kind of the reason why we're highlighting them as part of our agenda, giving background. Um, so that'll be part of NLS. Leading up to NLS in the next couple of months, we'll also have a couple of um, educational webinars and one of them will also be focused on these priorities and just kind of gearing folks up to be able to talk about them to their legislators and just giving generally more information. So that webinar should be announced soon on our website um, and I encourage everyone to register for that as well.
And in addition to these webinars and the sessions we're going to have an NLS leading up to NLS, we're going to be working on preparing what, what we call backgrounders. And these are a little bit longer documents where we take some of these key issues, key programs that we've just been talking about, and we give more, more background, <laughs> more information on them. You know, we provide context as to what the programs are, what the priorities are, what we are asking Congress to do, how it relates and it impacts our institutions and our students, and why it's important for um, our members to be knowledgeable and aware of the issue, especially as they converse with their legislators. But, you know, if the webinars and the sessions, if after the webinars, after the session at NLS, after you go through all the backgrounders, you still have questions, we are here for you. So you can always reach out to us via email. Um, you can always reach out to us at publicpolicy at acct.org. That's an email address that Katie and I both check. So one of us will get you an answer. And if we don't know the answer, we will find the answer for you. This, this will be my fourth NLS. So I can, I've seen this session a number of times and I can guarantee that this is probably the best way to familiarize yourself with these issues. Because fortunately, between our two organizations, we have some of the most knowledgeable people in Washington. Yeah, I would just add, you know, we hope that uh, NLS next year, uh, despite the fact that it's virtual, you know, we hope that uh, people will turn out and, uh, you know, and participate in advocacy in much the same way that they would if they were here so that we can have as, you know, our collective, the same collective impact that, and we know that there is an impact uh, from what you all do when you come to the NLS. Uh, and, you know, we hope to, to maintain that in, in this different context. And just to follow up on that, I think I like to look at the silver linings of things, right? 2020 has been a very tough year in many, many ways. But if there's one thing that we can see is that if you have been unable to come to NLS in the past because you're unable to travel, because work doesn't permit, this is an incredible opportunity to finally be part of it because you don't have to leave your home. And on that same vein, you don't have to fly to DC at the moment to be able to engage with your senator or your member of Congress. So we can help you. We can give you the tools and prepare you for that meeting so that you can be a stronger advocate for community colleges. I was just going to add to, in addition to the webinar that we're going to do around these priorities, we're also going to have a webinar um, specifically focused on best practices for virtual meetings with members of Congress and legislators and sort of like how to make the most of the moment. Um, I think like Jose was saying, in addition to NLS being more successful, accessible this year because it is virtual. I think that carries over to policymakers. I've heard a lot of their staffers and them saying, you know, now I can have more meetings because I can, I don't have to be physically in a place to talk to a constituent. Um, and so I think that almost makes them even more approachable. And so we'll be putting, in addition to that webinar we'll do, we'll also post a couple of toolkits, um, a one pager for best practices for virtual meetings and other resources. We'll include more information on the items discussed in this episode's description. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. <laughs>